Well, thank you for being here tonight as we continue our, our journey. I, I would let you know this. We are getting near the end of the book of Revelation. I had somebody say, we've been in it a year. I said, yeah, well, it's kind of hard to get through this particular book in much less time than that when you're, you know, doing one study a week in it. So, but we are getting close. As we think about that, we've actually got about seven studies and a vast majority of them are going to be the wonders of the new heaven, the new earth, the millennial reign of Christ. So hang in there. We've got a couple more chapters here that are tough for us to, to read, tough for us to understand at times, but very important as we look at our world. And again, remember this revelation, this letter that takes the name the Apocalypse, was written at a time that these things that we see uh, then we're at least 2,000 years away because we've made it to that point already. And we believe that a vast majority of these events that we've been studying now for the last several months are also still yet future. But the reason they're important to us is it gives us a correct sense of timing, how close we are, and how to view our world, what to think about the world that we live in. As we dig into chapter 17 tonight, we find these, these two final pieces of the puzzle. We, we have a one-world government, and we have now this one-world religious system and a one-world commercial system, a one-world monetary system. And all of these pieces, the Antichrist being the head, we now get to the religious head, and next time, after we get back from Israel, uh, we'll cover the, the commercial or, or the monetary uh, head of this final world empire. And as you look at the world that we're in tonight, it becomes very clear that we are heading towards, fairly rapidly, a one world religion. That one world religion will need a catalyst. It will be overseen by someone who will be a global ruler. That global ruler will, in essence, be an understudy of the Antichrist, the beast, and will push all world religions to the point of worshiping the beast. Now, as we say that, remember two things. Number one, the church has been raptured. It's not here. So anyone who's here tonight, that is probably, if not all of us, a vast majority of us, we're all going to be in heaven. Everyone who names the name of Jesus that's alive right now will not be here, will be in heaven. There will have been, in essence, this, this revival that occurred during the tribulation. People will have gotten saved. There's going to be a lot of rebellion, but there will be people forced to make a choice because the choice will be very clear. And, and so remember that what we know of the world today, those who are in it, who love the Lord, will be gone. And secondarily, there will be a chance for those who do not tonight know the Lord to receive the Lord during the tribulation. So God is very gracious as he describes what now I believe is a one-world religion that will focus in and worship not the Lord of hosts, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but really the Antichrist himself. And it comes to us in a way that we can understand it because we 
we can see these things begin to unfold in our world. And so would you pray with me and let's dig into chapter 17. We're going to try and tackle the whole thing tonight uh, so that we can move on to chapter 18 next time. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we admit that as we study some passages of Scripture, they're just tough, they're hard, and they trouble us. And so, Lord, we pray in these difficult passages where things need to be said that are difficult. God, would you temper them with your love? Would you cause us to know and understand uh, your perfect plans for us as your church? Lord, these things should excite us with the message of the gospel. Lord, there are people that could hear that gospel message even tonight and be saved. And so, Father, we pray that these things would not worry, but inform and cause us to come to that place where we are truly set on accomplishing your will while we're here on this earth. We love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Revelation 17, And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. And so you, you can see that the trumpets, the bowls, the sealed judgments have now been completed and there's going to be some additional information that's filled in on these two specific entities, commercial Babylon in chapter 18 and here tonight, religious Babylon in chapter 17. Saying to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And so it becomes very clear that the government of the world will be, in essence, very closely tied to this woman. I want to apologize to you ladies. This is not meant to be a male-female thing, but Scripture says what it says. It's purely a description, so please do not be offended by it. Uh, it. It just is the way that the language was written at that time. But it is a world system that's being talked about, not a woman. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And and you'll notice very quickly, you have this, in essence, prostitute. She's described as the woman several times here. Same person. And, and really it pictures an entity as opposed to a person, but it represents uh, as a person an entity. And then I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations of the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. At first glance as you read this, it's just like, seriously? We need to talk about this tonight? An excerpt from a book that was written back in 1998. It was written by uh, Tal Brook, and as he he wrote it, it's still very accurate today. 
He interviewed a man named Matthew Fox, who was an excommunicated Roman Catholic priest, who now is fully embraced by the Episcopalian hierarchy. And he constructed what he called a cosmic gospel, a cosmic theology, uh, a cosmic God or nature of God, nature of Christ as well. Tremendously wide appeal. And here's what he said. He said it. He takes a stand against patriarchal religion, which makes him popular with radical feminists. His pantheism, that would be many gods, right? Pan means many. Theism, God. Many gods. In other words, all roads lead to God. Many gods and mysticism. Things that are strange, hard to know, interesting, weird, bizarre. Mysticism makes him popular with New Age people. Humanists, his focus on rescuing Mother Earth. Boy, are we not focused right now on rescuing Mama Dirt. It's like Mother Earth, only different. Papa Dirt Clot, I don't care what you call him. Makes him popular among those who are ecologically minded, excuse me. His version of the cosmic Christ, a non-judgmental God about sin, is especially inclusive of homosexuality, makes him popular with the LGB community. And his emphasis on deep ecumenism, and when we say that word, what we mean is that all roads lead to heaven. That we all believe the same thing ultimately, we're all going the same place, Everyone who worships a God of any kind, anywhere, any place, worships the same God, that type of situation. Makes him popular with all those who hold the politically correct idea, if you will, that all roads, all religions lead to God. And finally, he couched his theology in Christian terminology, which makes him popular with cultural Christians. And I like that phrase, because there are people, and America is a culture of Christianity. But at times I wonder exactly how many people in this country have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. People who hate what God hates, love what God loves, depend on his spirit for their power, look to the Lord in all circumstances of life. He is, in fact, Lord, not just Savior. But there are a lot of people who are Christians in name. People who belong to churches who claim they're Christian. But if you ask them to define what that means, they cannot tell you the basis of the gospel message. They'll tell you, well, I go to this church. They'll tell you, I go to that church. Tell you, I belong to this group. They'll tell you, I did this with a certain person. But they cannot tell you that I believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. That he was fully God and fully man. That he lived a sinless life here on this earth. And when he lived that sinless life, he was then crucified, died, he was buried in the grave, he was raised three days later, And it is only those who believe in him that will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, there is truth behind the gospel. 
People are not saved by religion. They're not saved by church. They're not saved by going to this church. They're saved because Jesus Christ has saved them. They're saved because they have a relationship with the one and only King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. And so when people say they're a Christian, there's a whole lot of different meanings to what that actually means. The problem is, Jesus defined what it means. When he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, he was clearly making a statement that there was one road that led to heaven. And he was it. And there was one way. And he was it. And there was one truth, and that truth is him. And so we live in a world that is ripe for a religion that is all-inclusive. Just brings every faith together. Somehow brings together Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and those so-called Christians who believe in some kind of relationship with God that includes Christ in some way, shape, or form, but not the real Christ. Because remember, those who actually love the Lord are already going to be in heaven. So this is a group that is very much in vogue in our world today. You see, basically, people want to believe that there can be a relationship with God without Christ, without the Word, without a resting and trusting in the infallibility of Scripture, without there being a standard by which men live their lives, women live their lives, They love to have Jesus Christ as Savior, but very many today don't want him as Lord. They're looking for acceptance by a God of their own choosing, is another way to understand it. And so that is the condition that will have come to total fruition during the tribulation. Because the real church will have been taken home to be with Jesus. And those who have gotten saved are going to be branded as radicals. And to believe on the Lord is going to cost you everything during that time. So people are going to get saved. They'll be martyred for their faith. It's going to be a different world. But the world will still be clamoring for a singular religion that does away with all distinctives. And it is that picture that we have here in Revelation 17. And it's a picture of an apostate Christian church. A church that doesn't believe that Jesus Christ alone brings salvation. Religious Babylon will rise. And so the question in this chapter is, who is this? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you, speaking of the church, as the chaste virgin to Christ. So so God's got a plan for those who are really his. But most people want God to just accept whoever it is that they worship. I shared with the staff at Devotions yesterday 
I've gotten probably a dozen emails in the last couple of weeks or so. And the basic gist of them was, I need to speak more about psychology, and I need to talk more about 12-step programs, and I need to talk about the, the benefit of all religions getting together. And basically, it was this very thing. And I responded generally quite kindly to those emails, thanking people for their concern, and at the same time saying, look, the 12 steps can't save you. Psychology cannot save you from your sin. Buddhism uh, believes that ultimately your, your ultimate end is that you get snuffed out and become part of the one cosmic consciousness. Islam uh, is so capricious as to give Allah the, the, the opportunity after you take your last breath to put your life on the great balance scales and to determine whether you've done sufficient things to warrant paradise or not. And even then he's not bound to it. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. I'll take that. So every other group, every other religion that professes something else is antithetical to true biblical Christianity. That's not me saying that. That's what the Bible plainly declares. So if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, then we get our brand of Christianity from Christ himself. Amen? Now, having said that, it's extremely important for me to communicate this to you because I don't wish to to unduly harm, castigate, uh, point fingers at any particular group. But I think this passage as it unfolds tonight points to a, a very prominent place in the last days for the Roman Catholic Church. I know without a doubt, and let me say this very clearly and very slowly, without a doubt, I have met people in the Catholic Church, priests, nuns, I've even talked to a cardinal, I've talked to individual Catholics that have articulated to me that the way that they're going to heaven is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I know, as much as I can know, that they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've met them. I've talked to them. So in no way, shape, or form am I saying that every Catholic, every priest, every nun, every Catholic church is necessarily in and of itself heretical. I've met people who absolutely have a genuine relationship with the Lord. So please understand that I'm talking about the government. I'm talking about the hierarchy. I'm talking about the absolute mess that is already in our world that's called the Catholic Church at its highest levels. There is a difference between that and individual Catholics. Now, having said that, I think this last world religion is also going to contain some Baptists and some Presbyterians and some Episcopalians, and some Methodists, and a few folks from Calvary Chapel. (laughs) So please do not pin on me that I pick on a specific group of people, because I'm not. Scripture is quite clear here about where this church comes from, what its origins are, what its roots are, and what it's going to do in the very last days. And I think it leaves very little doubt as to who it is. 
But know this, it's a world religion. It's going to encompass everything. It will encompass Hinduism. It will encompass Islam. So everybody's going to get sucked in at the end. But it will have a head. And it is that head that is in view in chapter 17. Religious Babylon, that pseudo-Christian ecumenical movement of the last days. And notice these verses, verses 1 through 5, that we've already read in uh, his book. And you, you can pick up these books. They're, they're, they're long reads, most of them. Rich Church, Poor Church by uh, Malachi Martin. And again, people have castigated him. They've said, you know, he was defrocked. And that those things may or may not be true. But the fact of the matter is he worked in the Vatican. And so he's not somebody who's outside the information chain. And he said, regarding the emergence of the European superstate, he says it's going to include all lands occupied by the ancient Romans. It won't be Christianity or Catholicism. It won't be pure Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or any religion known today. It will encompass the New Age movement. He said, being a Catholic bishop, that it will be the harlot that sits on many waters. Verse 15, if you want to just drop down there, we haven't gotten there yet. Notice what it says. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits, notice that we are told some information here, very important. Our peoples, multitudes of them, nations, and tongues. So this is a multinational, multi-ethnic, ecumenical group. Very important to keep that in view as we move forward. And the reason being is the whole purpose of the Antichrist is to take away from the worship of God and to bring forward, in essence, the worship of his boss, Satan. At the time that uh, we look at these things, this apostate church, I I think as you look at it, ultimately there's going to be a a bunch of different component parts of it. But it's got to have some kind of leadership. And I think as we look at the world today, most of you who know your world history know that Europe, in essence, is the, is the center, is the beating heart, if you will, of the former Roman Empire. At one point in time, you could go to the north all the way to the border of Scotland, and you will find Hadrian's Wall, which was designed to keep the, the Celts from descending from the northern regions of what is now Scotland down into what is the British Empire. And so the Roman Empire stretched all the way to the north of Britain. It went all the way to the edge of what would have been now called Mongolia and Tibet, the Himalayas. It would have covered almost all of the Middle East. The Roman Empire was huge. That entire part of the world, save that which is currently Islamic, which has been a very recent manufacture, you have to remember that Islam didn't come into existence until the the mid-7th century, so A.D., not B.C. So when you talk about those nations which are predominantly Islamic right now, this letter was already 640 years old before Muhammad was born. So when when you think about these things, you have to put them back into perspective as they were written. That world that they will ultimately come from, I believe is predominantly Roman Catholic. It still is today. It's the state religion of Europe. And so we'll get to that in a moment. As you think about it, most of you have been around long enough to have watched the rise of the EU, European Union. 
That coin is a 2002 uh, Grecian um, two-euro coin. Uh, You'll notice what's in the center of it. It's a woman riding a beast. You'll notice the stamp, which is directly next to it, also from the European Parliament, uh, is a woman riding a beast. Very specifically, uh, the bull, which was the sign of the, of the gods of the Mesopotamians, the gods of the Hittites, the gods of the Arameans, the guard, gods of the Babylonians, every last one of the Cushites, all of them had as part of their pantheon of gods if not the primary, at least one of the secondary and major aspects of the worship uh, that was in that region of the world was the worship of a bull. And so as Europe comes on the scene, it kind of readopts some of these old uh, pieces of information that everybody would have known back 2,000 years ago. And why is that important? Because God actually talked to us a little bit Uh, And we're going to get there in a moment. You can turn, if you will, you put your finger in it, Genesis chapter 11. You all know the story. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And you remember what happened during that time. There was an interesting character. His name was Nimrod. Nimrod decided to get everybody together, and if they just kind of pooled their human resources, that ultimately figured, ah, well, we can reach up and we'll get someplace close to God. We'll, We'll just make our own kind of Godhead. During the time that those things were unfolding, the world looked at things a little differently. In the Canaanite pantheon, the the bull god El was actually the fertility god. Uh, Baal was his name. Uh, If you wanted to know who he was when the Jewish people came into the promised land, in the Hittites, uh, the Armeans, and the Babylonians, that same bull god was was the head uh, of their pantheon as well. In Egypt... You would have seen the same calf cult. The Egyptian god Horus was a bull god. And amongst the the Cushite peoples that settled in Edom and Jordan around the time of Christ, uh, they were pushed out of the promised land and into the neighboring lands. Also prominent was this bull god. And so it kind of takes us back to a place uh, that that we can understand because the world is, is back in that realm of thinking today. Now, probably some of you remember our, our, our good buddy Saddam Hussein, and I'll tell you a little bit about him in a second. But as you look at these um, two, two pictures there, the one on top it comes from 1563, and it, it's actually by uh, an Italian artist, but it was the Tower of Babel. You've probably seen it. If you've got a picture Bible, it's undoubtedly in there. Um, Below that is the actual headquarters of the EU in Strasbourg. It was actually designed to partially look like the ziggurat of Ur or the Tower of Babel. And if you look at the interior of it, it has exactly the same step formation leading up. Now, I'm not trying to turn this into a conspiracy theory. I'm just telling you, it kind of looks the same. And if you look at the sign as you enter into it, it says, Europe, many tongues, one voice. Let's look at Genesis 11, verse 1. And now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Why did God disperse the nations of the earth? Because they had one voice and one speech. And because they'd begun to gather together and basically they were trying to say, we really don't need you, God. We've got each other. And it came to pass as they journeyed in the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That would also be the land of Abraham. Amen? 
Abraham came from the plains of Shinar, Ur of the Chaldees. And they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. So they began to make the the world's first, as far as we know it, uh, bricks made out of some form of a mortar or or a concrete-like substance. We, We believe, for the most part, because of the ruins that are in modern-day Iraq, that they were, in fact, adobe bricks. They had brick for stone. They didn't have stone. They had brick for stone. And they made them. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad all over the face of the earth. You see, they actually had exactly the same opinion that the EU has today. Many voice, many people, many tongues, one voice. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing that they purpose will be withheld from them. In other words, as they gathered together, they began to push God out. How is Europe currently with regards to its relationship with God? It's post-Christian. It has absolutely pushed God out. It's not that there are no Christians there. There are very few Christians there. When in fact it used to be, much like the U.S. was at one point in time, almost entirely Christian. Now it's almost entirely not Christian. It's the reason that France is struggling right now with the, with the Muslim population. It's actually being taken over. From the inside. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. You see, the Lord saw this and he says, look, I'm going to scatter them all over the world. I'm going to make them speak different languages so that they will not encourage one another to do bad things. And so the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. They ceased building and therefore the name is called Babel. Because it is there that the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad all over the face of the earth. And so now we have all over the face of the earth thousands of different languages and dialects. Even within uh, specific countries. Multiple dialects. People who It's a, a very interesting thing when you're in uh, the south of Germany. When you're in Bavaria and, and Austria and Switzerland, they're all within uh, literally a stone's throw of one another, and yet you can go from valley to valley and they speak a different dialect. The people where Connie and I lived in, in the, prov- the Kärnten province, in, in called the Sonnenfenster, the sun window, down in the, the lower portion of Austria. When, when you're there, they, they speak Kärntnerish. You go over two valleys and they can't even understand one another. They speak some other dialect. You see, God saw very early on. Interestingly enough, in the 1920s, Sir Leonard Woolley began to excavate and found what they believed was this ziggurat of Ur, in other words, a tower. And it was made out of, guess what? Mud bricks. And it was dated to about 1500 or so B.C., which would be someplace in the general vicinity of that time that we would call after the flood. Under Saddam Hussein in the 1980s, they began to excavate that area, and Saddam Hussein actually rebuilt 
one side of that ziggurat, made the stairs all the way up to the top of it, and did it all with his famous bricks that I shared with you just a few weeks ago. In the reign of Saddam Hussein, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And so mankind has been trying to bring back the old ways for a very, very, very long time. So Europe is linked to that area of the world. All those people that scattered now are coming back together again in that sense. Europe is on the radar once again, and we've gone up and down. Whereas Europe is the best currency in the world, the U.S. dollar is best currently. Right now it's the U.S. dollar, but it goes back and forth. The difference with Europe, you've never lived there, is they pay a church tax. You think your taxes are high? Uh, in Europe, you pay between 8 and 9% of your adjusted gross income to the church. And guess who gets it? It's the Roman Catholic Church. The last year that they actually did a tally on it, it was 6.3 billion euros went directly to the Catholic Church from the governments of Europe. It's big business. Church supports the government. The government supports the church. They're linked together. In the last days, guess what's going to happen? The whole world's going to be that way. Right now, we have laws here in America that actually prevent that, right? We, we actually have the establishment clause that keeps government from interfering in the church and the church from overtaking government. But primarily for the government not to interfere in church. Here in the USA, massive amounts of money found in exactly one church. We don't like to talk about these things. The, the, here in the United States of America, staggering amounts of money are being spent, collected. It's been estimated there's been over 100,000 sex abuse claims against the Catholic Church here in the United States. Some of them public, some of them not, costing somewhere around $3 billion. What church has that kind of money? You see, there, there are churches that that's a big deal. It's not this one. I had an article, a guy actually came into my office and wanted to talk about it because he wanted to know what I thought about it. He wanted to talk about the... Uh, our Lady of Angels, which is up the road, cost over $200 million. The furniture in that building, the furniture in that building costs more than our entire facility. Almost $25 million just for chairs and lecterns. and Crazy. So this mystery Babylon seems to have almost the ability to, to do what they want to do. But during that time, in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Babel, which actually means the, the gate of God, there was a man, and his name was Nimrod. And Nimrod kind of ramrodded the project, if you remember correctly. Interesting in the history of the Sumerians, the Academians and, and the Hebrews at that time. In Ezekiel chapter 8, you're going to find uh, his son's name, uh, even though he was born after Nimrod was dead. 
Because as the Hebrew legend goes, as the Sumerian legend goes, Nimrod, which built the tower, he's the guy responsible for it, had a wife, Semiramis. And Semiramis claimed to be a prophetess of God. And after Nimrod died, she claimed that Nimrod came back and without them having any type of relationship, uh, she was with, with child. And that child was born immaculately. That child was claimed to be the, the son, in essence, of Nimrod. And she would be the queen mother of heaven. So the, the whole legend of that son, Tammuz, if you read there uh, in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, And he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to the dismay the women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now why would they do that? Because the story of Tammuz was Tammuz also died, but he was buried for three days, and then he was resurrected. And so within the history of the region, Middle East, Semiramis's offspring story carries on in almost every major people group that's in that region. In the Canaanite religion, she was known as Ashtaroth. Her child was Baal. In Rome, it was Venus. Her child was Cupid. In Greece, she was Eros, the child Aphrodite and Isis in Egypt, it was Isis, the child was Horus. And so this filtered out through the entire world. And so this picture of this group of people that would somehow come back to rule the earth, this false Christ narrative, has survived to this day. Began with Nimrod, Babylonians picked up on it. And then in Revelation chapter 2, if you remember if you were with us there, Where was the synagogue of Satan? It was in Pergamos. Where was it that the Babylonians took the altar of Semiramis to Pergamos, who ultimately had his headquarters there, Constantine, who made the official religion of Rome Christianity? And so there's a tie back to these things. It's one of the many reasons that I think as you look at what continues on now in verse 6, it says, And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And again, I'm trying to be kind here and, and not be too pointed in the way that I say these things. But when you look at the peasant wars, when you look at the crusades, you look at the Inquisition, you look at the Reformation, you look back at the history, what Constantine did was very unique because a group of people that no Roman emperor had ever used before, Constantine decided to put to use. And actually he had a vision, and what he saw was in this sign conquer, that sign, the vision that he saw was the cross. He actually came up with the idea of conquering in the name of Jesus. It was, it was he that did that. And so as you push forward into the medieval times and you wonder how the church could get so messed up as to slaughter by some estimates as many as 50 million people. 
There's a book, The History of Romanism, and you can read it. It's a very long book. It's very boring. Uh, But if you read the history of it, it's pretty sad. When Martin Luther decided that he'd had enough, he nailed his 95 thesis to the to the door of All Saints Church there in Wittenberg, and, and he said, look, these are the problems that I have with what you're doing. You can't support them with Scripture. Among them were, were indulgence and simonry and, you know, these things that you just, you, you look at yourself, you go, why? How could they possibly even think that's okay? That you could sell, in essence, forgiveness of sin. That you could pay an indulgence. You could go give somebody some money, and somehow that would absolve you from that sin. And so Luther says, look, this can't be from God's Word. I don't see it anywhere in here. And so you had the Great Reformation. So some 500 years ago, there's this split away from a system that's largely Roman, founded in Constantine, and and the Protestant church goes a different direction and and says from Martin Luther's own lips, coming from the first chapter of the book of Romans, the just shall live by faith. And so there there was a split. And yet both claimed to be Christian. So who is this? What is this beast now? Some say it represents a man, the Antichrist. Some say it's a world ruler who becomes a world ruler. Other, others say it's, you know, it's the Roman Empire. And I think to some degree it really is a culmination of those two things. There will be a person that oversees it. Notice verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the, of the beast that carries her which has seven heads and ten horns. And the beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. But those who dwell in the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life. Now notice this. It's very clear that this is not a genuine saving faith that comes from this beast, because those who follow it will not have their names written in the book of life. From the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. So this beast rises up and begins to wreak havoc on, on the world. I think the confusion is, is sometimes that we think of, we can't isolate a system from a person. And we have that in our world today. You can see it today. Sometimes we, we talk about being Islamophobic or homophobic or phobic in some way, shape, or form because we believe that there is a central truth that has to be acknowledged and people associate the truth with hating a person. That's not true. You can say something isn't true without hating someone who vehemently believes it. Now, it may be an insult. It may be something that they don't like, but the fact of the matter is you can still care very deeply. And in fact, if you do care deeply, you have to tell them the truth. You can't let people believe lies unless you don't love them. Then you can just let them believe whatever. And so I believe that as it was at that time, the power that was in power when John was writing these words was the power of Rome. It was, is, will be, and shall not be, disappeared for a while, and then will rise again. So I believe it's the power of Rome in some way, shape, or form. The Roman Empire will be revived. And it will bring forth some kings and kingdoms. 
And here is the mind which has wisdom. Seven heads are the seven mountains on which the women sit. And there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. So it couldn't be the nearly thousand years that the original Rome ruled the world, right? And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is the of the seventh. In other words, whoever the beast is that rises up, he's going to come out of the old Roman Empire. And is going to perdition. Rome has, has been likened to the city on seven hills for a very, very, very long time. More than 1,500 years. In Daniel chapter 2, and you can just mark it, you can look at it later, you're going to find that the kingdom that Jesus established is likened to a great mountain that covers the whole earth. There, In, in, in verse 10, you're going to find a, a word, and it says, the seven heads, it should say they, really. Uh, they, the seven heads, are like the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And, and some people say, well, that was all the Caesars. The, the problem is, is there was more than seven Caesars, a whole bunch more than seven Caesars. And in fact, even at the time that uh, these words were written, there had already been there had already been seven. So you couldn't have one that was and then isn't, and then one that is. But it says five that fall and one that is. So I think if you look at it this way, it's really easy to see the world empires that were being talked about. You had the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Grecian Empire at the time Rome was, and then Rome ceased to be. Rome hasn't really been a world power. It hasn't been the effect that, that you could say that it could be. And then in the last days, Rome will rise again. So the one that will be again, but it will pop up for a short period of time. And I believe really come to its heyday uh, during the tribulation itself. So in that sense, there's this new empire. But this new empire is one where the church and the world government are linked together. Uh, it doesn't exist right now. But we are leaning that way. And in fact, there's a great move right now. And, and in fact, Pope Francis, just a, just a month ago, almost a month to the day, speaking to a large group of, of Muslims, he, he flat out said, we believe in the same God. His exact words. No, we don't. Because I believe that God exists in three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, and Father God. Muslims do not believe that. Matter of fact, on the Temple Mount, on the Haram al-Sharif, it says, God has no son. So we don't believe in the same God. So we can't be worshiping the same God. As the God that we worship, we worship in three persons. So when you're trying to draw people together that way, you're actually lying to them. Because the last time I looked, the Catholic Church teaches that God exists as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And yet he said, plainly, we worship the same God. He's trying to draw people together for the wrong reason. The gospel is the gospel. Somebody's going to continue that into the tribulation period to the point of, of actually accomplishing, gathering all the world religions together under one banner. 
One religion, one government. Notice it in verse 12. And then the ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet. That is a really interesting statement. That there would be ten world empires that as of the time that John wrote did not have a kingdom yet. We've, we've talked for years about how that fits into the European Union and you know which nations have to come and go. I'm not sure that it's actually important which one it is. I just know that it will be because they haven't received their kingdom yet. Still to this day, I don't think that that's been fully revealed, but I do know this, that it will happen. But they received authority for one hour. In other words, one part of that last seven-year period has the kings with the beast. In other words, the beast actually is the one who's going to elevate them ultimately into power. In other words, the Antichrist is going to choose. How's he going to do that? He's going to have a three-part government. He's going to control the world's money. He's going to control the world's religion. He's going to control the world's government, so he will dish out power how he sees. Maybe the entire world is, is broken into little kingdoms. And there's a tenth part to whomever. And notice what it says about them. And these will make war with the Lamb. So this final world government, this final world religion, will make war with none other than Jesus. But the Lamb will overcome them. We know who wins. And it's the Lamb. Who is also the Lion. Amen? For He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And those who are with him are called the chosen. And the faithful, notice they come with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's because they were not there at that time. They come back with Jesus. We come back with Jesus from heaven. During John's writing of this book, that kingdom had not yet come. And brothers and sisters, we're we're to be having the mind of Christ. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, we saw that. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so these things that we see in the world, and it's hard. Let me just share with you, it's hard. It's hard to not, it, it's hard to not buy into this mindset that is in our world right now that can't we all just believe the same thing? Can I tell you, I wish that were true. As a human being, as a, as a fellow person of humankind, oh, I wish that was true. I really do. I wish that every road led to heaven. Me. Here's the problem. I know they don't. And so if I know they don't, I can't pretend they do. Because that's not love. As much as people would like to say it's unloving, to talk about something being wrong. It's not loving to tell somebody a lie. It's loving to tell them the truth. So the truth is, there's going to be a one world religion. Plurality in all religion. We'll just have, everybody will be all linked together. And if that starts happening, you need to be very, very, very worried. Because it means that the rapture happened and you're still here. No, I'm just kidding. It'll begin to turn that way. So when you see that happening in our world, you can know that horses are warming up in heaven. Amen? Verse 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw, and here it is, where the harlot sits, are peoples. People groups. Multitudes. 
massive quantities of peoples, nations, geographic regions defined by tongues. In other words, it will encompass the whole of humanity. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate our... Eventually, here's what happens. You know, the enemy uses religion. When he's done with it, he throws it away like yesterday's trash. So even the Antichrist, even this false religion will only be used for a time, and then the Antichrist, Satan, will turn on it too. That's the tragedy. Isn't that what happens with cults today already? People get sucked into believing that there is no Jesus. Matter of fact, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. You know that a, a vast majority of humankind actually has that as their religion. They believe as long as you believe something that you're okay. If you just believe in belief, if you believe in faith, if you have faith in faith, that that somehow can save you. And your Bible plainly declares exactly the opposite. Make her desolate and naked. Eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Doesn't sound like a good end. So being as we know that's going to be the case, this false ecumenical movement that's going on in the world today, you need to stay very, very, very far away from it. Because there are truths in your Bible that are irreconcilable with any other world religion. It makes it exclusive. That doesn't make it unloving. It just means it says what it says. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill this purpose. You see, even that last world religion is going to fulfill the purposes of God. They may think that they've got their own purpose. The Antichrist will be stimulating and stirring them and drawing them together. And it'll look like a good thing at first. And then the true colors will be shown. And to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And we're, we're going to find out the beast gets his. God isn't missing a thing. The beast will lead the, wor- the world in worship. And notice verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's going to be a religious head. It's going to be a city that contains a religious head that will reign over all the earth. I'll leave you to guess. You think on. Try and figure out what one city even exists in our world that might possibly have that power that controls literally almost a quarter of the world's population. Many churches today have watered down the gospel. It's not going to happen in this one. Truth is the truth. If we love people, we tell them the truth. You can't teach falsehood and expect God to to be honored by it. So we teach the truth. And hopefully we teach that truth in love, with compassion. We need to do that. We need to be compassionate and tender and gentle. But as the church, not every road leads to heaven, folks. We can't be one with everybody biblically. It's not possible. I wish it were, but it's not. And to pretend it is, is to lead people to destruction. Verse 17 of John 17, 
so important for us. And when you think about it, it's, it's really simple. Jesus is praying this great high priestly prayer. And he said to the disciples, sanctify them through your truth, for your word is truth. The only way that anybody becomes a saint is what Paul described in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how you become a a believer. You understand what the gospel message is. And that can't be watered down. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, these passages, they're hard. God, I, I pray that you would just now take all these things and tenderize our hearts and our minds. Give us compassion and gentleness. Lord, help us to reach out and Father, I pray for those within the, the Catholic Church, especially that love you. God, they, they serve you with the whole heart. I pray that you cause them to rise up and just uh, continue to, to preach the truth. And Father, for those that are right now in those wayward Episcopal churches and Lutheran churches, and Presbyterian churches, those that have denied the word, they, they believe that marriage can be defined as, as we see fit, or your word plainly says otherwise. Lord, they're in that camp too. They're in that boat as well. God, pray that they would return to the truth, and that your truth would be what we speak. When we say we're Christians, that we could find the answers for why we believe what we believe in your word. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in the, the blessed name of Jesus, the one who desires that all men come to the knowledge of repentance and be saved. And so, Lord, set us about that business in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.